Now, I realize it may uh, come as a bit of an oddity that uh, on this, the first Sunday of Advent, that we'll be dealing with the uh, Ten Commandments. However, I, we started the Ten Commandments earlier this fall, and as we are working our way through, I made a little bit of a miscalculation so that the first Sunday of Advent will be the Tenth Commandment. But that's okay. Uh, in a liturgical calendar, actually, you'll find that uh, preaching is, is planned over seasons. So that uh, Christmas, really from Christmas to Easter, uh, the focus is really on the Gospels and the life of Jesus Christ. And that following Easter and into Pentecost, the focus of teaching is uh, coming out of the life of the church and the epistles. But that moving into the fall and into Christmas, the teaching on a liturgical calendar usually comes from the Old Testament as preparation for Jesus Christ. So kind of uh, making that segue from the Old Testament into, into uh, Advent, uh, it, it, it works. So I, I'm putting all my, all my excuses out there for you guys there, okay? So. Plus, technically, technically, Advent really doesn't start till tomorrow morning. And liturgical calendars, uh, uh, the, the little calendar, some of you may have Advent calendars. Do you like those little things, little windows that open up and there's a candy inside? Uh, for the, that doesn't start till tomorrow morning. So don't be picking your candy right now, okay, on, on, on this Sunday morning. So. But this morning we come to the end of the Ten Commandments tonight. And, and, and I, and I want to keep a promise. Not too long ago, when I mentioned I was preaching on the Ten Commandments, uh, a certain person, and I will not name the name, he gave me a piece of paper and suggested I use it as a way of making the Ten Commandments a bit more memorable. And I've been hanging on to it. He gave me this piece of paper with a list uh, and with the idea that it would make the Ten Commandments certainly more understandable and possibly a bit more fun. So I've been hanging on to that list. It's a translation, actually, of the Old Testament, or of, the, of the Ten Commandments. It's entitled, The Southern Country Fried Version of the Ten Commandments. And as I studied, I found that it was originally posted uh, on the wall of the Cross Trails Baptist Church in Gainesboro, Tennessee. So, now, when I, when I first looked at them, I realized I, just, I couldn't just read them. I needed some sort of aid to, to kind of help communicate. And in sharing the aid I had in mind with uh, some of the people this morning uh, in the choir, uh, I was dared to go ahead and give it a try. So, with that as a warning and begging your forgiveness ahead of time, I've waited until this, the very last Sunday, to do this. It's a risk, I realize... But hey, it was a dare, so hold on there for just a second. Okay, it's time for the Southern Pride Ten Commandments. Can you hear me? Can you understand me? Okay. Commandment number one, we only got one God, just one, no more. One God's good enough. That's all you need, so quit your looking. Watch your mouth. Get yourself to Sunday meeting. You mind your ma and pa. No killing, no how. No fooling around with another fellow's gal. Don't you be taking what ain't yours. Quit your gossip and drop your tall tales. And don't be hankering for your buddy's stuff. You all got that? Have you got it? Those are the ten. Okay. I really do hope you got that and understood that. Um, 
Uh, I should have made it a bed instead of a dare. This morning, as we come to the Tenth Commandment, it has been my deepest desire, just in planning the Ten Commandments, uh, that in these weeks that we've been together, that God would be able to reach into the inner recesses of your heart and, and that there might be something about his touch that would, that would set things straight between you and him. Who knows what the Holy Spirit has found lurking in the shadows of your soul. All I can pray uh, for is that there has been an awakening in your heart that has brought something sweet and maybe a sense of freedom and an awakening, a cleansing, a liberation, and dare I hope for it, a bit of joy that comes with living a life in harmony with the God who loved you and in tune with the will that he has for your life. Now, some of you may remember that when I began with the first commandment, uh, I I read a a passage from J.I. Packer's uh, book on the Ten Commandments that put it the best. Listen again as I read it. God's love gave us the law, just as his love gave us the gospel. And as there is no spiritual life for us saved through the gospel, which points us to Jesus Christ the Savior, so there is no spiritual health for us save that we seek in Christ's strength to keep that law and practice the love of God and neighbor for which it does call. Suppose people generally began to say, by God's help, I will live by the Ten Commandments from this day forward and forevermore. I will set myself to honor God and obey him. I will take note of all he says. I will be in church for worship each week. I will duly respect, duly uh, constituted authority and show thanks to those of whom I owe the most. I will not murder. I will not hate. I will not commit adultery or indulge myself in lust or stir up lust in others. I will not steal nor leave the path of total honesty. I will not lie or cheat. I will not envy or covet. Suppose all churches and all congregations were ablaze with this sort of zeal for God and for personal holiness and for national righteousness. Why, why that what might even produce revival. When, when God quickens his church, the tremendous purging power that overflows, the heart of the simple believer transforms the moral tone of his whole community, the society around them, in a way that nothing else can do. God needs us to take his word to heart. Our world needs us to take his word to heart. You can change your world, your life, and your obedience, the care that you give to honor God and serve him with a whole heart, and a holy heart can make all that difference. And so this morning, as we look at the final commandment, I just love the way it ends with impact. When it comes to life in the 21st century, this one really does hit home in a way that you might not imagine at first. You've heard it read, you heard it read twice. You will find it again in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Listen carefully as I read it again. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or his maidservant, his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. 
Now, I know that few of you living in Vancouver in the 21st century are worried about your neighbor's ox or donkey, unless they really do have one, and that would be a worry. But I'm sure that some of you are not really fixated on a neighbor's ox or donkey, or maybe even manservants or maidservants. And so you might wonder, how on earth does this have any relevance to your life, let alone be the one commandment that ends with such impact? Well, the impact of this command is balanced on one single word, and it is the word covet. You shall not covet. When God uses this word, he puts his finger on probably the strongest motivation in our lives, and with it, he identifies what lies behind our most passionate pursuits and our most burning desires. On the surface, there's nothing wrong with passion or desire. I love passion, and I value zeal. And the word God uses here is primarily a neutral term. It literally means to desire, covet, to desire, covet, to take pleasure in something. And go through the Bible, and you will find it describing how we are to employ the delightful gifts that God has given us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31, the Apostle Paul urges us to earnestly desire or covet the best gifts that come of the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, after revealing all of the treasures that God has given us, we are told to covet such things as we have. Imagine the gifts, all of the things that God has given you. Uh, Your family, your your, your partner, your wife, your husband. And man, I I covet my my wife. I I covet my kids. And and, and you too might be able to say, "I, I do as well. They are a gift from God. I covet my time with my kids. And now I covet my grandchildren. And my time with them. Consider your ability to do things, your ministry, your fellowship, all the things that we have from God. The gifts that he gives so freely. Do you covet those things? At the risk of sounding like one of those commercials on TV, what do you covet? What I want you to see is that God has given us Hearts that are capable of passion. But he also knows that if misdirected and channeled away from him, our passions can become our worst enemies. Let me see if I can explain it. Coveting can can be described as an all-encompassing compulsion to possess something. Not just to admire something, but to actually own something. Not just to enjoy it, but to possess it. And when we covet, we set our sights on an object of desire and we refuse to rest until it is owned in our possession. Whatever it is, a car, a home, a boat, clothes, jewelry, furniture, art, gadgets, never in history have people been able to possess as much as we can. And it's not just material possessions. It spills over into relationships as well. In his book, Straight Talk to Men and Their Wives, James Dobson describes the voices that shout out to all who who, who struggle to walk the straight and narrow path. 
You, the faithful ones, who have accepted the routine of life and daily responsibility. The temptation does whisper at times, and it shouts at other times these words, as Dobson records them. Sucker, why should you be everyone's slave? Don't you deserve a break today? You are overworked and underloved. Why you deserve a better salary, a more prestigious position, a bigger house, more attractive spouse. Just look around. Why should your neighbor have all these things and you have nothing? Give those voices an opening. And soon you're looking at God and saying, you haven't been fair with me. What you've given me just isn't good enough. You owe me something better, and I will not be satisfied until you deliver. Some people even go on strike, a spiritual strike. They get bitter. They get hard. They're determined to have no sense of satisfaction. They they despise fulfillment, and they refuse joy. And God warns us right here and right now, you shall not direct your desires anywhere else but where God is. You shall not covet. Jesus repeats the same warning in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. Beware and be on guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has the abundance does his life consist of his possessions. What a concept. The idea that you could have everything and yet be in poverty. That's what Jesus is saying. I love the way John Gardner, the uh, author of the book, groundbreaking book uh, called Spiritual Leadership, he put it this way. He said, if happiness could be found in having material things and in the ability to indulge ourselves in all the things we consider pleasurable, then we in North America would be deliriously happy. We would be telling one another frequently of our unparalleled bliss rather than trading our tranquilizer prescriptions. Sooner rather than later, we need to realize that God has a better plan for our lives. Simpler? Yes. Plain? Sure. Uncomplicated? (laughs) Yep. Realistic? Well, you be the judge. 1 Timothy chapter 6, we read the Apostle Paul dosing out a measure of reality when he writes, We brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into the temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. That's reality. And the cure? Well, Paul puts us straight then by going right to verse 6 in that passage in, in Timothy. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Let me repeat that. Godliness with contentment 
is great gain. It doesn't get any better than that. Godliness, a a lifestyle of obedience that enables you to enjoy the presence of, of God at all times and in all places. Godliness is our greatest gain. St. Augustine makes the point in a famous passage at the beginning of his book on the Confessions. He says, It is thou, O God, who dost rouse mankind to delight in praising thee, for thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest with thee. The God... The way God has created us, the way God has created me, the way God has created you, is really quite simple. We are empty without him. And frustrated with anything else. And by the same token, he has created us, he has created you, and he has created me for a purpose. After Paul reveals that secret, that godliness with with contentment is our greatest gain, he then sets us free. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11, he says, So you, man of God, let me add that, so you, woman of God, flee from all these things, all those things you shall not covet, all those things, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. And then he goes on to say, fight the good fight of faith. It is worth it all. But it's a decision, really, that that you have to make and continue to make to keep your balance as you walk through these days. A number of years ago, one of my mentors, Gordon MacDonald, wrote a poem that describes an assessment of soul that I have found myself visiting again and again and revisiting throughout my life. The poem itself describes two men on either side of of, of the coveting equation, the covet equation, each going through an examination of heart. And as I read it, I would would invite you to take that assessment for yourself as well. It's called Midnight Games. That's the poem that he wrote, Midnight Games. So follow me. Last night at a late hour, two men, unknown to each other, sat brooding over 55 years of life. Those are moments when the proper ingredients of mood, time, silence, fatigue, accomplishment, or failure cause minds to gaze across the sweep of existence and play a strange and ruthless game called, What's It All About? Such ingredients being at that critical stage, my two acquaintances began to play. One sat at his desk amidst royal, paneled royalty in his private den, surrounded by quadraphonic noise and such opulence, he thought. The other rested calloused hands on a scratched kitchen table, no sound of foot except for the deep breathing of sleeping children in the next room and a humming wife preparing for bed. Tally the card, that part of a man's being, which searches for accomplishment, that's what it said. Count the score, it cried. Make a report, you two men, separated by railroad tracks and square footage and horsepower and clout. And so the first of the two began. For openers, I own a home, he said, with three garages, each filled with imported cars, I might as well say it. 
The spread is lavish. Nothing spared to make it the best all around. I own it all. It's paid for. You could say that it's an estate. I own a business, and I own 300 persons who work for me. I might as well own them. I tell them when they must come to work. I tell them when to eat, how much they'll earn, how hard they'll strive. They call me Mr., and some call me Sir. Yes, you could say, I own them. I own a wife. I might as well say it. I've capped her teeth, imported Paris finest, paid for weight reduction, dance lessons, club memberships. I've purchased her cosmetic beauty. Yes, you could say, I own her. (laughs) I own my kids. I might as well say it. I've paid off Harvard, Chevrolet, the optometrist, the abortionist. I've sent them all in motion with trust funds, European vacations, and front page weddings. Yes, you could say that I own them. I own my investments, my property, my stocks, my directorships. I might as well say it. I own my broker, too. Without me, he'd go from broker to broke. (laughs) Yes, you could say that I've got everything I own under control. I own a reputation. Some say hard-nosed, others shrewd. I might as well say it. I am respected, if not loved. But I never started out to be loved, rather that men might tremble at my word and decision. I have my reputation. Yes, you could say that. I own it all. I guess I own just about everything. Why, then, am I so empty of spirit as I play this midnight game? Why do I sit here wondering why my wife is not here? Why my children choose other things to do? If my company will survive, if my reputation is secure, if anyone likes me, why must I wonder when I own them all? Second half of the match, please leave that impressive scene and cross the tracks, count the score, tally the card of a second man who plays the game. My house is old, my car rusting out, and I wonder, he thinks, if the furnace is going to last the winter. But I might as well admit it, this place owns me. It calls me to itself each evening as I walk three blocks from the bus stop. It beckons with memories of Christmases, crises, giggles, and prayers. I am gladly owned by its warmth. My job is a job. Humbling, it's income modest, but I might as well admit it, it kind of owns me. It's opportunity to serve others, to fix things, to make them go and click, to make something with these hands of mine, some sense of accomplishment, producing finished things from raw. You could say, I like what I'm doing. My wife listened to her hum off key, was not a cheerleader, and Wesley, Wellesley was not in her background, but I might as well admit it, she owns me. I belong to her. So compelling her affection, so deep her insight, so broad her perspective, so compassionate her caring, I gladly give myself to her. You could say that I am possessed, nothing held back. She owns me. My children. (laughs) Hear them toss in troubled sleep, average students, reasonable competitors, they, I might as well be frank about it, they own me. I cannot withhold my time from them, my unrestrained enjoyment as they discover life and allow me to join them as both player and spectator. The birth certificates say that they are mine, but my heart says 
They own me. As to my assets, I own nothing Wall Street admires. I might as well admit it. A few things, perhaps, but largely unredeemable. All my holdings are in love, in friendship, in in memories and in discoveries about life. You could say that I'm glad to be alive, even if my estate is pure sentimentality. Reputation? (laughs) No man knows me or fears me, unless you count my friends. And I might as well lay it on the table. They own me. While I'd, while I'd jump to their side should occasion arrive, I'd laugh, I'd cry, I'd give, I'd die, I'd hold nothing back from them. You could say my friends own me. I have no regrets. Tally the card. Count the score. The souls of two men cry out. One owns and the other is owned. Who is the winner? Are you as confused as I as we watch two men extinguish the lights and go off to bed? One face is smiling and humming off-key. The other is frightened and listening to silence. Perhaps we counted wrongly. Perhaps we didn't know soon enough that it was a different game with different rules, with a different judge mounting to different and very high stakes. So there we are. Ten commandments straight from God. Just for you and just for me. And looking at the ten, we see the rules of a different game, of different rules, with a different judge, with different stakes. The highest stakes of all. So what's it going to be? It is up to you to decide. Are you going to give yourself over to the will of God? Are you going to trust yourself to the Lord who loved you and gave himself for you? It was Jesus who said, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. But it's up to you. So game on. Make your mind up. This may have been a more relevant Advent sermon than I had imagined. As we will find ourselves bombarded with commercials, with demands, each intended to stimulate your sense of want. My prayer is that God would be able to break through all of that to take you down to the one thing that you need. Where you might hear the voice of Jesus say, my grace is sufficient for all your needs. Come to me and I will give you rest. Would you pray with me? Dear gracious and heavenly Father, we would thank you so much for having already revealed what it is you think about us, that you love us. That you've made us and that, Lord, you've made us for yourself. <clears throat> and we are the ones who confess that, that, that we played hide-and-seek from you and let, Lord, there is no place we can hide that you cannot find us. 
And it is as almost as if we are the people who live in darkness. Upon us that light shines in the coming of Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to gain wisdom as by your Spirit we go through an assessment of our heart and life. And set us at peace with, with what this life has for us. For it is a gift from you. And Lord, help us to to pursue you in all things and know your presence. And with that, Lord, find that secret of satisfaction that comes from being yours and yours alone. So even now we declare ourselves to be yours wholly and completely. We will be the children of God through the wonderful name of the Lord who has loved us and given himself for us, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.